Today's conversation is about habits. Now, before you tune out, this is not in the typical vein of self-help of trying to get you to be a superhuman and exploring habits so you can put yourself under a microscope and criticize yourself and have all these lofty goals that you could be if you just weren't a piece of shit. No, this is a conversation about us learning how to build a relationship with ourselves that serves us. So my approach to habits is pretty nuanced. I'm not trying to tell you what to do or what I think is best for you, but I am trying to always share what has worked for me, what is continuing to work for me, what I'm interested in exploring, and that includes this conversation about habits. According to a study cited in the book I read for this interview, which is The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, about 40% of everything we do is habitual. Habits are a really useful thing as humans. It takes a lot of energy to exist. It takes a lot of energy to consciously exist and to make choices about what we're going to do that day, what our lives are going to be about. And so habits are actually a great tool to automate and make the things that we do regularly easier and leave room and leave cognitive ability for us to make choices about things that are novel and new and need our attention. Now, as an ex-method, I can tell you that habits also have not served me well. As it says in the book, they kind of happen without our permission. And you can end up with habits that aren't bringing you towards a life that you want to live. When I ask every single episode, who are you? I want you to ask yourself that, that question. That's why I ask it is because this whole project, the How to Human Project as a whole, is just an offering of me exploring my journey in public and hopefully bubbling up some questions or inspiration that you will have along your own journey. So as we talk about habits, I just want you to keep in mind that I'm not here to tell you how to best live your life. But I do think that this topic, especially taken with care, can be something that is deeply valuable to you. I first read this book, The Power of Habit, in 2014 when the paperback came out. I bought it in the airport like many people had. I took it home and that night read it in a single night. Because you can take it from me, as somebody who reads a lot of self-help, the language used in the book met me where I was. It wasn't telling me what I had to do or I should do this to have a successful life. It was just a simple exploration of what are habits, how are they formed, and how can we take some ownership of them. So if you're like me, you may have some work to do on the relationship with yourself and trusting yourself again. You may have been somebody like me, find yourself making promises to yourself and not following through with them or telling yourself you're going to do things and breaking the trust. This is a gentle reminder to start working on that relationship with yourself, to start to slowly and methodically and with care and with a group continue that dialogue. And maybe where last year or the last 10 years, you couldn't quite rely on yourself, maybe to start to rebuild there. And my hope for this conversation is that it gives you a little bit of that belief in yourself. I don't want you to go diving on your own and end up in a manic self-help phase that's not going to work. I want you to take things slow and to treat this as an exploration. Like this conversation I was just exploring what Charles Duhigg has learned about habits, trying to get 
some of the big ideas of his book across in the conversation and really trying to pique your interest in the book because if this is something where you could use a little bit of help, this is a pretty safe book to land on. It's very well worded. It's got pictures, which I love. I love the diagrams. And it's also really written with care in a way that a lot of self-help type books don't. And if you at any point would like to join a group, we're building a gathering on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash howtohuman. We are experimenting with the book club and it is going to open up into something larger because I don't want you to listen to a podcast on your own and try to move on that in an isolated manner. I want to create a space for people like us who have similar interests in learning how to exist, learning how to be a human in this little time that we have and to offer guidance and support, but mostly company, which I actually think is really more powerful than it gets credit for. Charles is an American journalist and author. He was a journalist for the New York Times and got interested in habits and decided to go on an exploratory mission himself to discover what are habits, how are they formed, how can we make new ones, and how we can use this human technology of habit making to our benefit and not to our detriment. So without further ado, here is my conversation with somebody who I am a big fan of, Charles Duhigg, which we've called Creature of Habit. Hey, Charles. Hey. My name is Sam. We have had very different life paths, but I'm a huge fan of your book, Power of Habit. I oh, think thanks. I think I bought it when it first came out. You can see the pages have turned yellow. <laughs> uh, so I've had well, this I appreciate it. I had a choice with timing whether to read your new book smarter, faster, better, or dive back into the book that I first fell in love with. And so I reread The Power of Habit. Which oh, is, great. And to give everybody a little background, I wasn't much of a reader when I picked this book up and I read it in one night at 10 p.m. <laughs> into oh the morning. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Wow. And there was it. there's something that just was right about it, where it had just enough story to, to carry you through. There wasn't any giant ontological statements of you should do this. You didn't moralize the habits. You just kind of shared about your journey of what it was like to try and understand what a habit is better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I and I think that that's, I appreciate that. That's very kind of you to say. And, and that's an important part of it is that I'm a journalist. When I wrote The Power of Habit, I was a reporter at the New York Times. Now I'm a reporter at the New Yorker magazine. And I think one of the things that's guided me throughout my whole career is that if you sort of give people information, then you empower them to make the choices about their life. People tend to be the best judges of what should be important to them. And so I, I'm always really skeptical of anything that tells you this is what you should do and this is how you should live. Because the truth of the matter is that, like, you know, I have some great habits. I just went for a run. I'm training for a, a half marathon, which I, I do a couple times a year. But I also really like having a cocktail after work. And so there's... um. I don't I don't think it's fair to say like which habits people should have as much as giving them the tools to choose the habits that they want for themselves. I loved it. It came through. And I actually have a, a follow up book for you to write, which is why we don't do what we want to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think the topic of self-sabotage and that kind of stuff is is great. Well, that's a lot of what, what Smarter, Faster, Better is about, is about um, how to build the habits that that make it easier for you to sort of be the person you want to be. Wonderful. Well, then I missed out. I'll have to go read that. <laughs> Next time. So, Charles, this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like, but 
Who are you? Uh, I I am Charles Duhigg. I'm a reporter and um, a writer. I live in Santa Cruz, California with my wife and my two kids. And, and sort of I've spent my whole life trying to figure out how to make sense of and explain the structures around us, whether they be structures inside our head or structures within society that influence who we are and what choices we're allowed to make. My dad was a trial lawyer. He passed away a couple of years ago. And one of the things that the trailers do is they try and be these instruments of justice, try and find ways that people have been impacted by society in ways that they might not understand, right? If you have a, a street with a bad design, if you have a, a car that's, that's made in such a way that it can injure people easily, then some of your ability to make choices is taken away from you. The first thing is just getting people to recognize that. And, and that's kind of what I do with my writing. You know, when I was a an investigative reporter at the New York Times, a lot of what I wrote was about how companies try to influence or take advantage of folks, including older Americans. I did a big series about Apple and what conditions are like in the factories where iPhones are made. So there's a lot of things that we do where we are tied to structures. We are tied to choices that seem that seem hard to perceive at first. And the more you understand about them, including what happens inside your head, right? Like what are the neural processes that make you, you, when you learn about those, you gain control over them. And so that's kind of what I've tried to do with my career. I, I just have a curiosity question, which is sometimes people write the books that they need. So what's the origin story of you going down the life path? Did you need help with that? Oh yeah, no, no, no. The, the reason, so I sort of had these two experiences that caused me to write The Power of Habit. The first was that I was this like smart guy who was successful at all kinds of things. And yet I could not make myself like get up and exercise in the morning. Right. And I, and, and we had my, my son was born while I was writing the power of habit. And as I was like doing the reporting for it, I would find that as he got a little bit older, like one or one and a half or two, he would eat these little chicken nuggets that they make for little kids, toddlers. I would be sitting at the table with him. And without even thinking about it, I'd reach over and I'd grab one of his chicken nuggets and eat it. And it's not because it was tasty, like they're not yummy, but they're like designed to kind of like give you this burst of like fatty, fatty substances and it sort of melts in your mouth and it's made for little kids to give them calories. I couldn't even stop myself from eating these things. And so I was thinking like, if I'm so smart and successful, why am I having such trouble making myself do the things I want to do? And so I wanted to learn more about that. And then I had this experience where I was a war correspondent in Iraq for a little while. And, and I got in, sort of introduced to the U.S. military because I'd get embedded with them. The whole thing about the military is, and, and anyone who's a veteran knows this, that the skill with the, with the military is every military on earth is essentially a giant habit change machine, right? Your instinct when someone is shooting at you is to run the other way. And they teach you this habit to shoot back. Or when you're in Iraq now, you can email your, your spouse every night. So they have to teach you good communication habits because otherwise you get into a fight and then you're distracted when you're on patrol the next day. As I watched the military, I would see these people who like 18-year-old kids who couldn't do anything else in life but could operate perfectly in a combat arena. And it's because these habits have been drilled into them. And I was thinking, this is like the greatest thing on earth. This is why the military is so great for so many people is because it teaches you how to understand your own habits, it teaches you these life skills. So that really got me interested, these two things and trying to understand how habits work. And so that's why I wrote the book. So we're all on the same page. What, what is a habit? 
So a habit is basically something that happens inside your brain, right? There's a part of our brain known as the basal ganglia that exists exclusively to create habits. And every animal, every invertebrate, um, or sorry, every vertebrate on earth has a basal ganglia. And the reason why is because if you cannot create habits, you basically can't evolve, right? If you had to decide every day walking down the, the road, whether to pick up the apple or pick up the rock and take a bite, you would be so overwhelmed by information that you would never become a higher species. So the basal ganglia exists to make habits. And the way that it does that is it basically takes these three things. Every habit has these three components. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior. And then, and then the, a routine, which is the behavior itself. And then finally, a reward. Every habit in our life, and about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit. Every habit delivers a reward. And that reward is how your basal ganglia learns to grab onto this cue routine reward and make it into a chunk or a behavioral pattern that happens almost automatically. So that's what a habit is, is, is the habit loop, this cue routine reward. It takes a ton of energy to think. And so they, they save energy. Yeah, basically, that's exactly right. Your brain is constantly looking for ways to think less. Because thinking is really expensive. Thinking takes a lot of energy and our brain wants to conserve that energy for other stuff, whether it be just respiration or whether it be dreaming up fire or video games. So habits are a way that allows us to spend less energy on the daily activities that all of us do. One of the things that stood out to me is, well, during a book club, we were reading The Road Less Traveled. I don't know if you've ever read it. There's no 80 brilliant pages, the first section on discipline. Just before I, I started the chapter, I looked up the etymology of discipline and it actually shares the same root word as disciple and it meant huh. to learn. And I thought that's so interesting of how punitive the word has become in modern times that discipline is, it's almost a punishment, but the actual original meaning was to learn. A disciplined person is somebody that's learning as they go, learning from their mistakes. And so I wanted to check out where habit came from. Looks like there's a French root, which is haber, I'm going to pronounce that wrong, which is to have, to possess. And the Latin habitus is your quality, nature, or character. And it goes along with the study you cited, which says that about 40% of everything we do every single day is all habit. Really, it's, it's not too big of a stretch to say your habits are your character. If you decide on a daily basis, kind of randomly, like, I think I'm going to be nice in this instance. Well, that's a lot different than, than having a habit of being kind and generous. When we really talk about our characters and about who we are, working on our habits, those things that we get up and do every day, I would add in a, in a very kind and gentle way. I don't want people to shame themselves for where they are at today. But it's, we're talking about really character building and, and constructing who you really are at least 40% of the time. Because if you do every single right consciously, but all your habits are really screwed up, that's a failing grade. You're now at 60%. I think that's right. And in fact, this sort of reflects. So Aristotle once said, we are what we, what we regularly do. So excellence is not an act, it's a habit. And, and this is kind of the core of Aristotelian philosophy, right? So he, Aristotle and Plato kind of had this difference over what constitutes the good. And then Plato said it was these conscious decisions that people made. I'm really simplifying here. And Aristotle said exactly what you said, that that how we act on a regular basis is our character, and that defines whether we are moral or not. You sort of take that into today's world, and, and I actually don't think of discipline as a punitive thing. I think that there's this quote from Sean Connery that I love. 
because you remember Sean Connery was um, Mr. Universe before he became an actor. He was the ideal of male fitness. And he was talking to the author, Michael Crichton, and he once told him that any opportunity for discipline you should take because you benefit from it, right? You learn, as you learn to become more disciplined, you learn to, to discipline yourself more easily, which means you can do what you want as opposed to, to what, you know, whatever urges overcome you. I think today what we find is that when you look at, when you look at most things that are written, a lot of them focus on big decisions that people make, right? How, how do I decide to get married? How do I f- decide to find love? That's a sort of a self-help trope. How do I, how do I decide which job is right for me? How do I, how should I diet to lose weight? But what we know from the evidence, and I, as someone who is very rooted in sort of evidence-based writing and the world of science, diet's a perfect example. It does not matter what you eat today. Like whether you're keto today or whether you're paleo or whatever. What matters is what you eat every day, right? You can, you, can have a, you can have a pastrami sandwich today and you're fine. You're not going to gain weight. If you have a pastrami sandwich every single day, then you're going to gain weight. It is really the habits that determine almost everything about our life. The big choices are important, right? Who you marry matters. And so, so it's worth learning about that. But most of the time that we spend thinking and learning has to do with those big, those big moments. And most of our life is lived on a day-to-day basis, right? What I eat every single day determines how healthy I'm going. How much money I spend on coffee in the morning and on, whether on takeout in the evening versus you know, making coffee and dinner at home, that has a huge impact on how wealthy I am. And so what's really important is helping people understand how to see the small choices that they make automatically in their life. Because if they can build some discipline around that, and the great thing about habits is that it becomes automatic, right? You don't really have to use that much discipline to exert a habit. Those are the things that determine whether someone ends up healthy as they get older and wealthy and whether they're happy and whether they're in a good relationship. Those things matter as much as who you marry or what diet you're on or what job you have. And in some cases, honestly, according to the evidence, more. You can make some big mistakes in in marrying people, but there's not that many big mistakes someone can make. But how you treat the person you're married to every single day, that matters much, much more about whether your marriage is going to work or not than who you actually married. Yeah. I was telling a friend the other day, I was like, oh, man, my partner's driving me crazy. And he goes, oh, is that bad? I go, no, man, any woman would drive me crazy. It's not her. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. Like, and one of the, the things that I really loved about your framework, I'll just, you know, spoiler, the book's 10 years old, is that the habit loop, which I'll you know share for everybody, is the cue, routine and reward is actually when to me, it's more of a zoomed out picture of what we would normally think of. Like normally we're focused on the routine and you kind of zoomed it out to say, hey, 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 hold on a sec. Let's let's pull it back. And so to me, this process of looking at your habits is not necessarily about being a superhuman or life hacker. I'm a teen dad, ex meth head, college dropout. That's not my lane. You know, I'm really just trying to live a stable, fulfilling, happy life, a simple life. To me, this is part of self-inquiry and relationship building with yourself. You know, we, you can choose almost every single relationship with your life, even your children. There are plenty of people that abandon their children. My dad's one of them, but you cannot choose to avoid a relationship with yourself. And whether, whether you're aware of it or not, every single thing that you do is part of that relationship. 
do you honor your commitments to yourself? Do you, do you have trust that when you say, Hey, I'm going to do this thing for myself that you'll do it. And that's what I think this book is nested in, in that actual self inquiry process that the habits are the, the focus, but what we're talking about is something bigger. It's the relationship you have to yourself. That's right. That's right. And I, I think you're right that, that when people think about habits, they tend to think about the behavior. And what's much more important is to think about the cues and the rewards, right? Like what, what are the cues in someone's life that caught the trigger an automatic behavior and what rewards are they craving? What, what, what can you learn about yourself, about what you want and what you need that cause you to chase that behavior? And, and, Cues and rewards are hard to identify, right? Like it's much easier to see the behavior, to, to recognize, oh, I'm grabbing a cookie or I have this craving to, to do meth or to do a drug that, that I've become habituated to, or I feel overwhelmed in my, in my family situation, so I'm just going to leave and try and, and get myself out of it. It's really easy to focus on the, on the behavior itself. But what's much more important is to try and figure out what is the cue and what is the reward because if I can play with those, which are frankly easier to play with, I can actually influence the behavior, right? Like if I can diagnose the cue and the reward, I can oftentimes find a new behavior that corresponds to that old cue and that delivers something similar to that old reward, but is a healthier behavior. And as a result, makes me healthier. Another part I love, as a member of uh, 12-step community, we don't write about ourselves. <laughs> and so it was, it was cool to have you take a look at 12-step and the power of community. And this is something I've been fixed on. I've been sober 10 years. Um, I, even to this day, still have that old feeling of like, yeah, you know, people don't change. And I really don't expect people to change. Like if I'm, I'm with a partner right now, I don't expect her to have any radical personality change. It's really love her as is right now or, or not. And that's the way I do like to treat it. But I have this one example in my life, you know, I don't, always, I, I rarely have stuck with any New Year's resolutions or big manic plans to change myself in a radical way. But I do have this one example of radical personality change. And to me, the only link I can draw is that it's built into community and the power of community. We're very much in a kind of secular society. We're not meeting at churches the way maybe our grandparents did or synagogues or, um, mosques, but there's such a powerful force in community that to me, have you heard of the idea of the zone of proximal development? Have you heard of that? No. So you can imagine it as three rings, like a bullseye. And in the center is what you can do on your own today. And on the outside, the third ring is what you can't do even with help. The zone of proximal development is what you can do with help. And so when you think about parenting or uh, teaching, that is kind of where you want to keep people. A, as humans, it's really rewarding for us to feel like we're growing and to feel like we're just at that right limit of stretching our capabilities. And I feel like the, the power of groups keeps you there. Because you're part of something, it's helping you be something you couldn't actually be as an individual. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So let me ask you, so the first time you went to, to a 12-strap group, was that was like the first time you went, was that it? Like you, you just started going after that or was there, were there a couple of far, false starts where you would go and then like wouldn't show up again for a couple of weeks or months? Yeah. Well, um, the first time I went, I was probably a newborn. 
because <laughs> my mom's in the program. So I grew up in the rooms. I was aware that it existed. Okay. And I had gotten in trouble a lot in my teenage years from 12 to 22. I was pretty much always under the influence of something. I had been forced to go and this and that. The time that stuck with me was what we call in the rooms, the gift of desperation is that I didn't have the money for rehab. My mother wasn't talking to me, wasn't interested in me. My friends weren't interested in me except for my using buddies. And I was about to be in a custody battle. I was about to probably lose my son. And I was also potentially at risk for getting in legal trouble because of a, a fight I had gotten into basically where somebody ended up pretty seriously hurt. It was basically like I got dropped into this thing. There was nobody else that would have taken me. It was the last door on the block basically. And here was this group of men and women who just took me in. One of the things that stuck out is like, it very much works on attraction rather than promotion. People aren't going to leave pamphlets at your doorstep. But what I had been doing while I was using was like getting together with friends and we would just like daydream about what we're going to do. You know, oh, I'm going to make art. I'm going to create a YouTube channel. I'm going to do this. And when I got to these rooms, I noticed for the first time I saw young people like me. There's a lot of young people in San Francisco at the time who the artists were getting art shows and the DJs were playing sets. And it was totally different. This was not the line knowledge is power, like bullshit embodied knowledge is power. Knowledge in practice is power. But this is the trouble about reading a book like this is like, what do you do once you then know? That's kind of the second step of it, right? Do you alter your behavior? Or do you just now suffer in the fact that you know how to change, but you're just not putting the effort in? That's an interesting question. So let me ask you, so when you were, had you ever been desperate before, before that moment? Not quite in the same way. And not what, why? Like what, what was special about that moment? Well, you know, even at the very end, uh, I thought everything was fine and the problem was with society. And so there's very much kind of a victim mentality. It's them. It's not me. There was no ownership of my problems. It was like, God, if only society could accept that I'm a meth head. Like I love meth. It's society that puts the stigma on it. And these people are so cruel. I felt like oppressed. I was an oppressed meth head. <laughs> no, I had not been to that desperation point. And what happened? So you, you walk into that meeting, you're at that moment and you walk into that meeting and what happens in that meeting that causes the switch to flip? Hope. How do you mean? It was the first time I really believed I could alter my destiny. There was, at first I just thought of it as a year, like I'm going to clean up for a year. And then after that, my life will be good. I can kind of go back to the lifestyle I want. I will have gotten through my legal troubles. But when I look back on it now, I think that the biggest thing that came through was hope that I wasn't stuck. And where right. I was, here were people who had nearly destroyed their lives, just like I had, who now had families, who now were good fathers and good mothers. And I think that's what helps you stick it out is hope because the beginning, the first year is pretty terrible. I mean, for me, heroin guys get a little bit of a pink cloud, we call it because they're not shitting or having sex or really a functional human at all. But when right. you're on uppers and you feel amazing all the time. And now you're back down to reality. It was like a gray existence. So it's not an immediate reward. You right. Know, there, there is this element of hope. Do you ever hear about the, the mice drowning experiments with hope? Sort of the learned helplessness. Wh which ones are you talking about? Uh, 1950s Harvard experiment led by Kurt Richer 
he put mice in a bucket of water and waited to see how long they gave up from exhaustion. And it was something around 15 minutes in the average that the, the, the mice couldn't swim anymore and they would sink to the bottom and die. And then he did the experiment again, except right at the moment where they had given up and were sinking to the bottom, he'd fish them back out, kind of nurse them back, let them get their grips and put them back in the bucket. And then the new average with that was 60 hours. Whoa. So he goes from 15 minutes to 60 hours. Yeah. And the conclusion was the, now that the mice knew that there was a possibility they might get out of this problem, they can now keep going longer. And I think that's what's working there is that you see all around that this is possible, that maybe your ideas are shit. Maybe the ways that you think how to run your life are shit. And maybe you should just try whatever they're doing because it seems to be working. I think that's exactly right. I think that like a huge part we know from the science of people who have studied AA is just that having those role models, both positive and negative. What's interesting is there's a bunch of research that shows that when people go to AA or any 12-step gathering for the first time, part of it is that they see someone exactly what you just said, who, you know, they've turned their life around. They were like me, and now they're living a better life. That gives me hope that I can do this. Part of it also is that you go in and you see someone and you think to yourself, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> like, that guy is sober. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm way smarter than that dude. <laughs> so if that guy can get sober, I can definitely get sober, right? Like, like having the positive and the negative example, the research tells us is really important. But the other thing that's important, and, I, and I'm curious what your experience is on this, is not just providing hope, but providing a framework yeah. or explaining how to make that change. Because we know that for a lot, there's this, there's this idea called the golden rule of habit change, which I had mentioned it before, which is you should not try and extinguish a habit. Like once the neural pathways associated with a habit exist in your brain, and we know this is particularly true for uppers, right, for methamphetamine, is that once those neural pathways exist, they're basically going to be there for the rest of your life, right? Like once you create any habit, the neural pathway associated with that habit is there. So you can try and repress that habit. You can try and repress that neural pathway, and that'll work for a lot of people for a long time. But, you know, smoking is a great example of this. People who like they gave up smoking, you know, 10 years ago, they're clearly not addicted to nicotine anymore. And then they just have like the worst week ever or their mother-in-law is in town or something bad happens and they have that craving for a cigarette. That's because the neural pathway is still there. So instead of trying to extinguish the neural pathway, what, what the science tells us is much better is to identify the cue, identify the reward and find some new behavior that corresponds to the cue that delivers something similar to the old reward because what you're doing there is you're changing the habit instead of trying to extinguish it. And that takes advantage. That means that the neural pathway is still there, but now it's just a little bit different. Now it's tied to some new behavior. And as a result, you don't have to work so hard to extinguish it. So I'm wondering when you went to those meetings, in addition to having the role models, like what reward was it providing for you that that drugs previously provided or that hanging out with your, with your user friends previously provided, like what was happening in that meeting that was, that was compensating for this craving that you used to have? You definitely get a framework and you get a big knowledge dump pretty quickly. A couple of the kind of low hanging fruit here is you immediately get a group. Things are different in a group. You no longer have to be strong enough to carry the log. You just have to do your part carrying the log. Like if you think of, I'm thinking of like a wrestling yeah. drill where we carried big mats 
And did you stop hanging out with your user friends? Once you started going to to the 12-step meeting, did you find like, now you have a new community and you can kind of get rid of the old community? Yeah, it wasn't so much like some of my friends who were still there at the end, we still were friends, but we took a year off. Some of the people who I loved the most ended up coming back in a year or two, but you get a group and you get a purpose. It's kind of a cheat code. One of the things that is drilled into you is all of the things that happen to you are your new qualifications to help someone else down the road that went through that same thing. So if you're somebody who completely lost their family, you'll never see your kids again. Your only job is to figure a way through so when someone else comes through that door who feels like it's completely worthless because I'll never see my kids again, can say, hey, I know this is devastating to you, but I've done it and I can help you. So there's this instant purpose, right? It, it almost turns, turns the tables on the worst things that have happened to you, which is that what we're going to do, we're not building a, a castle with high walls and then making a perfect community and then keeping all the screw ups out. It's like, you know, if you want to rescue people from the fire, you have to be close enough to the fire that you're willing to see people burn. But you now have the job to try and pull people back out. So it gives those experiences meaning. It gives those experiences meaning and it gives you purpose. And you get a higher power, which does not have to be an omnipotent personal God. I showed up very atheist, but you are told you need something bigger than yourself. You need something that is, I guess what what I think of it as is like higher power, just any source of power that is bigger than yourself. It could be the group. Some people use the acronym of of God to stand for a group of drunks or good orderly direction. Groups are incredible, especially with habit change, especially with habit change, because you might have an idea, you might get this beautiful vision from that kind of internal ego ideal version of yourself, that, that kind of beautiful, perfect version of yourself that shows you that you could be a disciplined person and you could read every morning and do push-ups. Your first urge is like, of course, I've seen the vision. I, of course I can do that. And so you jump in a kind of a manic self-help episode that of course is going to burn out. The power of groups is that there's an editing process to it. You say, hey, I'm going to run a mile every single day. And somebody will go, uh, why don't you just exercise in some shape every day for now? You might not be able to run a mile every day. Like, sounds like you're going to get shin splints. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really powerful. I mean, I think that the groups are really powerful. We know, and we know this, right? We know that study after study shows that, like, if you want to lose weight and you have a group that you're losing weight with. So, for instance, so for running, um, so as I mentioned, you know, my wife and I, we do the we do half marathons, a couple of half marathons every year, and so I have this text group that whenever we're training for a race, whoever else is doing the race with us, we like on Sundays we say what our long run was and we send a photo of it or something like that. And it's great, right? It makes a huge difference. It shouldn't, but it does make a huge difference just because you have a group around you. And the fact that when you, when you stopped using, the alternative would be you took a year off from everyone who you were hanging out with. The alternative would have been that you hang out by yourself. And that's the most depressing thing on the face of the planet, right? <laughs> to be like sitting there by yourself. But the fact that you have this community that you can turn to that lets you replace this other group of people, at least temporarily, is incredibly important. And I think with it, one of the things you're getting at is there's this idea of homeostasis, right? That our bodies and our brains crave things being similar, even so much so that it can be unhealthy, right? If you are someone who is anxious, 
you will go back to being anxious when there's nothing to be anxious about because it feels familiar. Even if you don't like it, it feels familiar. And setting aside the physical addiction aspect of drugs, which some drugs don't have physical addiction, right? There's not, under the technical definition of what addiction is, nicotine's a great example. If someone quits smoking 100 hours after the last cigarette, there is no nicotine in their blood anymore. You're essentially free of the addiction of nicotine from a physical perspective. But from a psychological perspective, from a neural perspective, you still have the pathways associated with smoking. You still crave those cigarettes. And our body craves familiarity, craves, craves homeostasis. To your point about exercise, saying I'm going to run every single day, that's really hard because your body does not want you to do something radically new that changes things so much. It wants you to, to ease into big changes. As a result, being able to say, I'm going to exercise somehow every day. Some days that's going to be a walk, and some days that's going to be doing five push-ups when I'm watching TV, and some days it's going to be running a mile. That allows you to maintain that homeostasis, to change it a little bit each day in a way that your brain is going to say, this is something I like, as opposed to, this is something I start to resent. Yeah. One of the things that I'm curious about, we share different languages, is about willpower. So in recovery, it's like almost shunned. That's like a dirty word. But I think we're actually talking about two different things. So I, I wanted to understand how you, especially we can just go straight to your personal life too, because I am interested about what happened to you after this journey of this is when you're thinking about how to harness what you call in the book willpower, what is that like, if you can describe it? Because the way we use it in recovery is different than the way it's used in the book. So how is it used in recovery? Like, what, like why is it a negative thing? In recovery, it's a negative thing because it's basically like, oh, you can't get through it just white knuckling it, right? We call it white knuckling it, where you can't will yourself through this. You actually have to jump into the group and into the community. And what's going to carry you through is not your own willpower, but the power of moving as one with support. And so willpower just kind of gets pinpointed as, as a bad word. I like the word uh, willpower for one simple reason. I think of it as in the mornings when I'm journaling is what will get done today, right? What are my absolute non-negotiables? And I limit them to normally one, two, or three things a day. And so when I think of what I'm going to will that day, it's not like, what am I going to will that day, you know, clenched up, but what will happen no matter what, no matter if I want to, because often what works best for me in my life is not what I want to do. I'm an introvert. I don't want to be in groups. I, I don't even want my best friend producing the show. I want to be alone. But what happens is I end up miserable. What I want generally leads to misery. And when I surrender, like, oh, I could be listening to a podcast right now instead of hanging out with a friend or hanging out with these groups, or I could be reading or I could be doing this. But surrendering to the process, especially of social behavior, is pretty incredible. Like what I want to do every single time I show up to a group of some sort that I'm a part of, I want to do something else. So I think this white knuckling idea is like an extreme example of willpower, but sure. all of us use willpower every day, right? I don't want to wash the dishes. I'd rather just leave my bowl on the table because it's easier for me. But I use a little bit of willpower to force myself to go put it in the sink because I know that A, it keeps the house tidy, but B, it makes my wife happy, et cetera. So we're using willpower all the time. I will say that there's a woman named Jessica Leahy who wrote a book recently about addiction. The majority of people who recover from addictions, and most of them aren't extreme addictions, but the majority of people who recover from addiction is actually known as spontaneous recovery. 
And it does happen through white knuckling it, right? So if you think about people who quit cigarettes, many, many people who quit cigarettes will do so just by giving up cigarettes. And it's very hard for a week or so or two weeks. And then that it becomes easier. And what happens usually is that they will quit on average seven times before they actually quit. So that iterative process of quitting teaches them where their vulnerable points are. It teaches them how to prepare for when their willpower will break down. And the really smart ones are the ones who go find a group to quit with, whether it be a 12-step group or whether it be me and my three friends are going to give up cigarettes and we're going to encourage each other, or they read a book that teaches them how to develop this community, how to change their habits in ways that are easier to accomplish. But, but the point is that, that willpower, we think of willpower as separate from finding groups or from finding, a re, finding recovery, but actually they're synonymous. The act, of, the act of joining AA doesn't mean that you aren't using willpower. It means that you know enough about your own willpower to say, my willpower muscle gets strengthened when I can go to a meeting every single day. It replenishes my willpower to do so. And what we know from research is that willpower is literally like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. But in a given day, it can really get fatigued. So there's all kinds of studies showing that when do people have affairs? People have affairs after a long, stressful day at work because their willpower muscle is depleted and suddenly they find themselves in a situation. When do people who are alcoholics who have given up drinking, when do they drink again? They drink again after they've had to do something that takes a lot of willpower that day or that week or that month because their willpower muscle is fatigued. And everyone's willpower muscle will get fatigued. We can strengthen it. The more we practice willpower, the stronger it's going to get. But even if you're the biggest bodybuilder on the face of the planet and you can lift 500 pounds, after you lift 500 pounds, your arms are going to be tired. The people who succeed are not the ones who say, my capacity for, for willpower is infinite, not the ones who say, I can white knuckle it forever. The ones who succeed are the ones who say, this is the moment when my willpower typically fails. It has failed in the past, or I think it will fail because it's exhausted. And at that moment, I need to have something else to do because I know that I'm going to be weak. Whether that means that my mother-in-law is coming into town, and I know that when my mother-in-law comes to town, it makes me so anxious. That's last time that I fell off the wagon. I started smoking again. So now when my mother-in-law comes to town, I'm going to leave after an hour and a half, and I'm going to go for a walk. And I'm going to have, I'm going to have some, like, I'm going to walk to that coffee store and I'm going to have a double espresso because it's going give to me, give me that same boost of kind of calming energy that cigarettes used to give. So I've planned ahead of time. This is actually within science. This is known as implementation intentions. I've come up with an if then for my life. So this is what willpower is. Willpower is the ability to white knuckle. And all of us have that ability. It's also recognizing that it is not an infinite ability to white knuckle, which I think is what you're saying, right? People yeah. can definitely give up drugs for a day or a week or a month. They can white knuckle, but at some point they run out of willpower capacity. And the people who succeed are the ones who say, I need an alternative. I need a new habit. I need something that either replenishes my willpower muscle, like going to a meeting and having people who are examples, being able to tell them what's going on in my life, getting some feedback from them, having them double check my thinking, or I need something that offsets what I, the reward I used to get from that old behavior. 
it used to be that I could relax with a glass of wine. I also know that taking a bath is relaxing. So when I'm craving that glass of wine, instead of picking up the bottle and pouring it, which is the easiest thing to do, I'm going to make a decision ahead of time when it's easy to say, don't pick up the bottle. In fact, don't even have the bottle in your house. Instead, just go and take a bath because that's going to help give you the same sense of relaxation that wine used to provide. I can totally get behind that. What I want to get through in this conversation is not necessarily to replace the book or be a shortened, you know, lucid version of the book, which I think lucid has a version of your book. It is to help people who, like me, have a really bad relationship with themselves and change, maybe get a little bit of belief back in the relationship and maybe to start it this time with a lot of love and compassion and in a way that helps them rebuild that relationship with themselves and and slowly work on, hey, if I say I'm going to do this thing, I want to be the person that can honor that commitment to myself. I actually want people who are there to actually read the book, which is why I didn't talk about Alcoa or any of the anecdotes I loved and would love to talk to you about, but I don't want those stories actually help carry people through the book, which is why I didn't want to spoil it. But one thing <laughs> I would love to hear since I have you in front of me is you have the idea of Keystone Habits. The book is going to cover it in greater detail than we ever could. But the idea that some habits create change in other areas, like for instance, exercise is a great one. People who tend to exercise tend to then go make healthier food choices. It's not magic, but you, you have noticed, hey, there are some habits that have a bigger rippling effect throughout your life. I'm curious, in your own life, as you're trying to be a, a good father and a good husband and a good human and make the most of your time here on this planet, what are the keystone habits that you're always kind of checking in on? You're doing regular inventory to make sure, hey, am I taking care of this one? Am I taking care of that one? Yeah. What wants to you in your own life? So, and, and just explain sort of what a, what a keystone habit is. So there, there are some habits that when they shift, they set off a chain reaction. So exercise, as you mentioned, is a great example. Like we know that for many people exercise, if you start exercising habitually, it will change your eating habits. You will eat more healthfully. And sometimes you're aware of it, sometimes you aren't. What's interesting is that according to all these studies, there's these two researchers named Oten and Cheng who did this work. People who start exercising habitually will also use their credit cards less. They'll procrastinate less at work. They'll, they'll do their dishes earlier in the day. It sort of strengthens their willpower muscle. And most people aren't aware of that, right? Most people don't think to themselves, oh, I went for a run this morning, and that's why I'm keeping like the Amex in my pocket. But for many people, exercise is a keystone habit. When you change, deliberately change that habit, it sets off this chain reaction. Now, what's interesting, and this gets to your question about what the keystone habits are in my life, is that exercise is not a keystone habit for everyone. The people for whom exercise is a keystone habit are the people who do not think of themselves normally as exercisers, right? If you were a high school athlete and you take a couple of years off because you have a kid or something, and then you start exercising again, it's unlikely that exercise will be a keystone habit for you. But if you're someone like me, who is not a high school athlete, right? They'll like basically played no sports in high school whatsoever. And then you start training for half marathons, which is what I do then exercise is actually a keystone habit. And the reason why is because it starts changing how you think about yourself, sometimes even beyond your consciousness. I never thought of myself as an athlete, but now I run all the time. I keep a log of how much I run. There's on my calendar. It tells me how much I have to run every single day. There is this evidence that I'm proving to myself that actually, even though I don't think of myself as an athlete, 
I actually am kind of an athlete. And that constant messaging that, that I am someone who actually can make themselves run and that does run, that influences all kinds of ways that I see myself. That's why it's easier to eat healthily is because like you walk in and there's the salad versus the sandwich and some part of your brain says, eh, I'm the kind of guy who eats a salad because I went for a run this morning. And so that's what's important is if you want to identify the keystone habits in your own life, try and figure out what kind of change seems irrationally scary to you or irrationally hard. Going for a run should not seem like a hard thing. And yet for me and for millions of other people, when you start running, you think to yourself, I have no idea what to wear. I have no idea what route to take. I don't know how long to run. I'm going to look like an idiot. And so it seems irrationally scary. And that's a clue that that kind of change will be uh, a keystone habit, that if you make that shift, it'll actually set off this chain reaction that changes all kinds of other things in your life. So what's powerful about that is that for me, exercise is in fact a keystone habit. Um, having dinner with my kids is a keystone habit because before the pandemic, we never had dinner together. And so that's become a really important keystone habit. Getting to bed, being asleep by 11 o'clock at night is a keystone habit for me. It's a big one. Yeah, it's right. It's because basically it's proving something to myself. Like it's proving to me, like you have the self-discipline to force yourself to get to bed, which means that you, you've earned having a good day the next day and getting being productive. When I eat dinner with my kids, I'm proving to myself that I'm a good dad. And so it becomes this keystone habit. I start acting like a good dad because I've done this one thing that proves to me that I am, in fact, a good dad. It changes my self-image of myself. And so what's really important is when people are looking for the keystone habits in their own life is ask yourself, what kind of change seems irrationally hard or irrationally scary or you've been shying away from it for reasons you don't really understand? That's a clue that if you make that shift, it will actually pay huge dividends. It will change other things in your life without you having to work so hard at it. I absolutely love it. And I, and I agree, especially, you know, in recovery, there's a couple of good lines they throw out, which one is you can't think your way out of bad thinking. You have to act your way out of bad thinking. Self-esteem comes from esteemable acts and that it very much the things that have the highest rewards for me are the ones that I don't want to do or I had to do a couple years ago, I had to strip hard from my vocabulary for a bit to figure out which tasks I just don't wanna do and which tasks are actually hard. I was using, oh, this is hard. I was using it so much and I think the words we choose do impact our relationship to objects around us. Absolutely, and one idea, this is actually a pretty critical idea, is to understand that there's kind of two parts of our brain, right? There's the, the prefrontal cortex, our conscious brain, and we decide how we see ourselves and see the world through decision-making. I'm gonna decide that that's good and that's bad. My brain will recognize that. There's another part of our brain that does not trust or ignores our decisions. And what it does is it looks for objective truths. And within psychology, this is known as stated preferences and revealed preferences. If you ask someone, do you want the salad or the steak? They'll say like, oh, salad, I'll have the salad. That's much better for me. But if you put both in front of them, they'll eat the steak, right? So there's a stated preference and a revealed preference. There's part of our brain that looks for those revealed preferences and believes that's true. So no matter how many times you say like, I'm someone who's great, I always do the right thing. There's a part of your brain that's watching you. And if you don't do the right thing, it basically calls BS on the rest of your brain. And if you do do the right thing, that inner part of your brain says, actually, you know what? 
I don't even care what this guy's thinking about. This guy is a good guy because he just did the right thing. So that's why self-esteem comes from esteemable acts. That's why this is true is because there is a part of your brain that does not give a shit how much you think you're great or think you're terrible. It's just watching what you do. And based on what you do, it's coming up with an answer about who you are. It's like with other people will often say, yeah, talk is cheap. I am looking at the time and I want you to have had a great experience being here. And part of that means just respecting the time that you gave us. If you could send us off, I think a lot of our audience are people like me, people who maybe struggle with stability and struggle with trying to be thriving human, let's just say, and existing is exhausting. If you could send a little note to somebody who maybe is starting to get warm to the idea of rebuilding that relationship with themselves and rebuilding, maybe saying, hey, you know what, let's let's try to do a, a slow journey of being better at doing the actions that we know are going to be good rewards to us. What's, what's a message you would like to send them off before they dive into the book or dive into this kind of journey? So I would say two things. The first is we know that this is true based on literally hundreds of studies. Any single person can change who they are and change their habits. There is someone in this world today who has been smoking for 30 years and they will have their last cigarette today. There is somebody who is a hundred pounds overweight or 20 pounds overweight or 10 pounds overweight. And they will start today to lose that weight and they will keep it off for the rest of their life. We know this. People can change. It does not matter how old you are. It does not matter how ingrained that behavior is. People change all the time. So the question then becomes, if you know that you can change, how do you do it? And the best way to do it is to learn what's happening inside your brain, whether that means reading The Power of Habit or going to an AA meeting and learning from that setting or from reading other books or from watching TV shows. The more you learn about yourself, the more you are empowered to have these tools to change yourself, to make that change easier. And then to recognize that part of the process of change is experimentation. My wife is a scientist. If every experiment she did was a success, if every experiment that she did came back exactly how she expected it to, she'd be a terrible scientist. Nobody would ever give her any grants because the whole point of experiments is to learn what's right and what's wrong. And when you're trying to change, you're doing experiments with yourself. You're saying, I'm going to go to this AA meeting. If it works for two weeks and then I fall off the wagon and I stop going, that doesn't mean that you're a failure. That means you just did an experiment and you need to figure out what happened after two weeks. What occurred that tells you something about the next time you start going to those meetings after two weeks You should anticipate X and come up with a plan about how to respond to that. Plan the next experiment. Plan how you're going to succeed next time. But most importantly, this is hard, but it isn't impossible. It isn't even rocket science. It's something that people will do literally every single day and that you can do if you just spend some time thinking and planning about how your brain works and learning and then say, It's okay when I fail because I'm going to use that to learn how not to fail next time. Perfectly said. Thank you, Charles, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. My name is Sam Lamont. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please take a moment. 
to give back to us. Go to iTunes, write us a review on the iTunes store. It helps people understand that the conversations we have here are good and valuable. It helps Apple know that we're a podcast that should be displayed prominently. It's also really nice to come to on a weekly basis and read the new reviews myself. It's part of a dialogue I'm having with people who enjoy the podcast like you. You can also join our community, which right now is on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash howtohuman. You'll get all the videos of the episodes we've done in video. You'll get access to our book club. And we are about to open up a even larger community aspect, which is where my heart is right now, is building a space for people to gather, and especially a place for people to gather that doesn't sell you books or sell you on anything, but just creates a spot for the gathering and all that comes with it, even though it is uncomfortable to gather at times. And even though gathering might not be what you want to do, I believe that the act of getting together and communing with one another has a power I want to explore. And I'd love for you to be a part of it and to stay up to date as that progresses Until next time, I hope you have a wonderful day and I hope that this conversation inspires you to continue working on the relationship you have with yourself and honoring this little bit of time that you have in the human experience. Thank you.